following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. If you take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Galatians, we're continuing in our series in the book of Galatians, and we're, we're arriving at a, a passage tonight in chapter 4 that perhaps leaves, uh, receives a little less attention than, than some passages around it. You know, if you've, you've been with us, you know we just looked at chapter 3, which, which includes these classic statements of justification by faith that have been key texts in the, the history of, of the Protestant church. And We've just come through chapter 3, and we're about to head into chapter 5, which, of course, is great statements on, on walking by the Spirit and, and fruits of the Spirit. And, and here, sandwiched in between these, these well-known texts, is, is chapter 4. And here, Paul is going to express his concern for the Galatian Christians in, in a way that highlights both, both the condition of their hearts as well as the nature of his own ministry. Tonight, we're looking at, at chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. So if you would join me in reading Galatians 4, 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. Now it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is God's word for us. Let's pray. God, you have given us this text, this passage of the word which you originally spoke to the church in in Galatia, but are now by your spirit speaking to us tonight. And so I pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us from your word, that we might be more and more like Christ, that he might be formed in us. We pray this through his name. Amen. Remember, shortly after, before uh, our marriage, uh, I moved into the apartment that we were going to be living in. I had started a summer job and I wanted to get things set up 
before, uh, before our wedding. And I didn't have a cell phone or a landline or internet or anything like that when I first moved in. So one of my first tasks when I, when I moved in was to go down to the library and research phone plans and decide how I was going to be connected with the outside world from my, my little apartment. And after some contemplation, I remember buying a Verizon uh, landline. I got my little phone and, and hooked it up and, and uh, got, got in touch with Verizon, and they came and, and hooked up a phone line, and finally I had access again to the outside world. I believe it was about 5 o'clock one evening that they completed the setup of this, this landline. It was about 15 minutes after that, and shortly after 5 o'clock when my phone rang, and I got my first phone call. I hadn't given my phone number to anyone yet, uh, but I picked up the phone and it was a sales call. And I thought, wow, Verizon sure gave my phone number out quickly. Um, Apparently they'd passed my number onto a list of vendors because I got several sales calls that first night before anyone got my my phone number. Between that and realizing that the phone plan didn't actually cover uh, all of the phone calls that I wanted to make um, and the taxes and fees, I quickly canceled the phone plan. I remember on the phone with Verizon, you know, I'm going to cancel my phone plan. And I remember them trying to pull me back into this phone plan. You know, they were trying to convince me to to go back to this this phone plan. You know, uh, know, could we add more services to your plan? No, there's there's a lot of money involved in that. Well, could we do, you know, uh, could we do better customer service? Yeah, you could not give my phone number out. Uh, You know, can we do anything to retain your business? And and so Verizon is trying to pull me back into this this phone plan that I was adamant about canceling. And I I, I just remember thinking, I am not going to get pulled back into this uh, slavery of sales calls and and, uh, carved up phone plans and and high taxes and fees. I think Paul, Paul starts his passage here in, in Galatians chapter 4, warning the Galatian Christians because they are being persuaded. There is, a, there is a sales associate that is calling them and is pulling them and trying to encourage them to re-enter a slavery that they had been freed from. Now you may recall if you were here with us last Sunday evening, Pastor York's messages, he talked about the glorious truths of the gospel about our changed status, how we once were slaves to the world, but now we have been given a changed status of sons of God. He said that we're, we're no longer slaves, but we're sons, and we have all of the privileges of sons. So we're counted as co-heirs of Christ, uh, of God with Christ. We're, we're, we have the spirit of the living God in us. We are able to call on God and call him Abba, Father, and, and Paul is, is listing all of these benefits in the first part of this chapter of being sons of God. What a comprehensive and rich description it was of the blessings we have in our Savior. But having, having just looked at these, these rich blessings that we have in our Savior, Paul, Paul reminds the Galatian Christians here in verse, verse 8 that we start off with in our passage that, that they should be all the more awestruck by the blessings that they have in Christ, as soon as they compare it to what they had come from. Not only are the blessings of being sons of God deep and rich and abiding and everlasting, but when compared to the slavery, to the worthless principles of the world that they had come from, the change in status that we receive by being in Christ is life-transforming. And so Paul says, look, You who are sons of God used to be slaves to worthless and base principles of our world. 
slaves to things that are not by nature God's. And so at, at the heart of our joy, at the heart of our, of our worship as sons of God is a proper understanding of this change of status that's taken place in Christ Jesus. But as Paul goes on, you know, after expressing this change of status in, in verse 8, Paul spends the next couple of verses, in verses 9 and 10 of this passage, expressing his concern, e- even his fear, that these very men and women who had been freed from slavery to sin are being pulled back into a form of slavery, to the very slavery they've been rescued from. You know, all throughout the book of Galatians, we've been talking about these Jewish Christians, these Judaizers, who were, were like these Verizon sales associates trying to pull us back into a pattern of, of, of law-keeping and, and into a pattern of earning our salvation by what we do. And Paul's question for the Galatians in this passage is this. He's, his question is, how can you, who have come to know the living God, who have come to know the adoption as sons and daughters of the Most High King of the universe, how can you even think about turning back to weak and worthless principles of the world that you were enslaved to. Maybe to simplify his question, I think Paul's just asking, who decides to give up being a son in order to be a slave? That's the basis of Paul's question. But as we look at verses 9 and 10 here, I want to I look at three truths that these verses express about God's people and our experience as believers. Follow with me as we look at these two verses first off here. Paul, Paul starts by, I think, pointing to a trait of human nature that has been evident in God's people all throughout the biblical narrative. We are people who forget. We are people who forget who God is and what he's done. We're people who forget the horror of sin and the slavery of sin. And so we're people who are constantly being tempted to to pull our gaze back, to to draw our gaze back to the sinful slavery that we were once in bondage to. You might remember the Israelites and the people, uh, the the stories that that the Old Testament relates to them. Here are the people of God, Israel, who are rescued from Egypt. They're rescued from Egypt by God's mighty hand laying plagues on the Egyptians, rescuing them from slavery. They're rescued in such a way that, that... Gold is piled up on them as they leave, as the Egyptians sort of ship them out as quickly as possible and are willing to to pay them to get out as fast as they can. The Israelites are promised a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that will be their possession forever. But it just takes one stint of a little less water than they would like, a little less food than their bellies would, would wish, a brief moment of panic perhaps, and they begin to complain to God. And of course, even though God does provide manna and water to his people, the people still complain because they want meat. And in Numbers 11, the people say this, and, and, and as, as men who look back at the story, this seems such a preposterous statement, but, but here in Numbers 11, we hear the Israelites say, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we had in Egypt that cost us nothing, and the cucumbers and the melons the leeks, the onions, the garlic. And I love, how, I love how the biblical narrative allows the Israelites to sort of spell out all these things they wish they still had. Like, oh, man, if, if meat wasn't enough, well, we even had cucumbers back then. Um, and and you're, you're, you're left thinking, Israelites, cucumbers and onions? Are you kidding me? 
Do you remember the bricks where you, you had to gather your own straw and fulfill the quota? And do you remember the, the slave masters who were whipping you? And do you remember the, the, the members of your people who were killed and, and forced? Do you remember that your babies were thrown into the Nile and you're sad because you don't have cucumbers? I mean, that's, that's what we, we see here in, in the, the narrative of Israel. Why? Because we're people who forget. We're people who forget what God has done and we're, we're people who forget the horror of the slavery that we are trapped in. And of course, this is really nothing for us to point our fingers at. The same tendency to forget is at play in our own hearts as well. And, and we, could, we could play out hundreds of scenarios of this. You know, here we are, we're, we're people who have been rescued by Christ. We're people who have been given the hope of a kingdom of heaven. We're people who have been given freedom, forgiveness, and everlasting treasure in Christ Jesus. This is what we have. Then, but then we start to worry and we're overcome with anxiety because we're just, we're just not sure how a certain situation is going to play out. And so we fret and we become stressed. And we become anxious and we start to think, boy, I can't see any way how I'm going to get out of this. Or, or perhaps, perhaps we're taken with something that we want or we think we need and, and, and we begin to, to covet it and we begin to be depressed or, or disappointed or, or frustrated because there's something we really want there and, and we don't have it. And so it starts to shape how we think and approach our time and our days. Or, or maybe it's, it's when our identity is in question, how people view us and, and how other people's opinion of us starts to define what we think about ourselves and other people's opinions of us starts to drive what, what we do. Or, or maybe it's when anger and bitterness towards a certain person or situation drives our hearts and our responses. Or, or maybe it's we're, we're depressed because of suffering and hardship or, or our, our marriage hasn't played out the way we thought or our parents aren't understanding. We could play out scenarios over and over, but what's at the heart of these scenarios? At the heart of these scenarios is that we have forgotten that we have the eternal treasure of Christ Jesus who has defined who we are, given us all hope and joy of life and godliness and we think, oh, oh, I need to go back to trying to control my own life and, and see if I can get things under control. And I can't believe this is happening. And we're, we're pulled in all of these situations back into our state of sin and self-focus. We're people who forget who Christ is. We're people who forget what Christ has done for us. And we're people who begin again to let the worthless, worthless things of this world guide and dictate our responses. And when we let the, the worthless things and situations of this world guide our responses, we're people whose gaze is inching back away from our Savior toward the slavery that we were trapped in when all we knew was the world we are caught in. We are people who forget. And so Paul is warning us here. Paul is warning us, don't forget. Don't trade your sonship back into slavery. It's the first thing Paul tells us about ourselves and our nature here in these verses. The second thing, the second thing that Paul points to, however, is he points to the nature of the slavery we're tempted to point back to. I think what, what Paul points to is that the slavery we sometimes point to is in fact a very religious slavery. You see, remember who these Galatian Christians are. These Galatian Christians are people who have been rescued out of pagan idolatry. They're people who used to worship and love feasts and at temples of Greco-Roman gods who were no gods at all. There are people who were caught up in the worthless idolatry of the world around them. The Galatian Christians aren't going back to that. 
The issue here is not Galatian Christians looking back and wondering if they should go and, and participate in some love feasts any, again. That's not what's happening. In fact, what's happening is that there are people who are going back and, and beginning to keep the Old Testament law more strictly. And so I can certainly imagine the opponents of Paul saying, Paul, where are you coming from? What are you talking about? We're not turning back to the slavery of this world. We're keeping God's law better. We're removing ourselves further from the world. See, we're keeping a more strict law. What do you mean we're turning back again to the slavery we used to walk in? We're not going back to being pagans. We are trying to run further from worldliness by keeping God's laws more perfectly than before. So, Paul, what are you talking about, about returning back into slavery? But I think you see Paul's point. Paul's point is this. Relying on anything other than Christ Jesus crucified for you and for me, for our acceptance before God, is a return to slavery. Tim Keller put it well when he put it this way. He said, the basic principle of the world is that we need to save ourselves. We will worship what we think we need to fulfill ourselves. See what he's saying? What is it that gives our life meaning? What is it that we find our approval or our self-worth or our image or our identity, our salvation from the mundane meaninglessness of this world? Where are we finding our image and our identity, our salvation? If it's anything other than Christ, we are returning again to slavery. So sure, money, sex, approval, success, accomplishment are all things that might give us meaning and identity, and we should absolutely flee those. But Paul's adding to this, he's adding to this that that active, rigorous works of ministry, church attendance, Bible reading, being a sympathetic person that everyone can turn to, can also become a enslaving standard when that becomes our measure of who we are. I was struck, and I, I may have shared this story with some of you, by a, a story I heard recently It's a part of a, a class that I was listening to in which a man was telling uh, about how uh, he was in a community. There was an elder man in the community who was known throughout the community as one of the most well-respected men in that community. The well-respected man who was known for charitable works all around the community one day invited this guy to his house and says, come in, I want to show you a room that I have built up. And in that room was a photograph of this man doing every good deed that he had done. There was a picture of him with the Lions Club, and there was a picture of him serving over here, and there was a picture of him with this, this person. And there was a picture on covering all four walls of the room of him doing the good, the good charitable, religious things that he was known for doing. And this man said, what an enslaving standard to have to build a room, a resume of what you've done to convince yourself that you are a worthy person, a good person whom God will accept. See, what Paul is saying in the end is that either we will live under the gospel in which we abandon ourselves and abandon our efforts, in which we place our trust in Christ alone, in which we openly admit that there is nothing that we can do to earn life and gain favor with God except to throw ourselves in utter abandon upon His Son who was crucified for us. That is the only thing we can do. Anything else, if we do not do this, we will be using something else. We will be trying to craft a life that is worthy of acceptance or approval with something else. If it is not Christ, there is something we are doing to build up our sense of worthiness and acceptance. And if it's anything other than Christ, then it is slavery. It is slavery to the principles of this world. 
So here's, here's Paul saying that we will, we, that, that life is, 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 is life that either we will live under Christ or we will live under something else that will enslave us. And so there's questions that are uncovered here about what we're doing. There are questions that I need to ask myself. Why am I a pastor? Why am I doing ministry? There are questions for you to ask yourself. Why are you here at church? Why are you doing what your parents are doing? Why do you give money to good causes or the church? Why are you spending your day worshiping? This this question gets at the why of what we're doing. So that Christianity and what we do is not just do I do X, 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 Y, and Z. It's why am I doing that? If the answer is anything other than my Savior died for me, so I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Him who lives through me for the glory of God. If the answer is anything other than that, Paul is saying we are enslaved to the principles of this world. So we're people who forget. We're people who turn back to building our own resume. Sometimes we do it by seeking pleasure and building success. Sometimes we do it by keeping biblical rules very strictly and very well. But how do we counter this temptation? How do we, how do we oppose this temptation? And Paul tells us right here in this passage. See, Paul gives us the answer in verse 9 when he says, But now... You have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. See, Paul is reminding us that we know God. But the essence of being a Christian is not our knowledge of God. It is His knowledge of us. John says in 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and has sent His Son to be the propitiation our sins. Or as Tim Keller put it, he said it this way, the great and central basis of Christian assurance is not how much have our hearts set themselves on God, but how much has his heart been unshakably set on us. See, we know God, but rather, more importantly, more central to all that it means to be a Christian, he, God, has set his heart on us. He knows us. See, again and again, we keep coming back to this reassuring thought that it does not depend on me. It's not the depth or the constancy of my affection for Christ. It's not the breadth or the sufficiency of of my holy life as a grounds for my future hope. No, we are justified. We are accepted by God because He knows us. Because of the constancy and the depth of His love for us in Christ Jesus. Because of the breadth and the sufficiency of Christ's death, of Christ's shed blood for you and for me. How do we counter these, these moments of forgetting and turning back to slavery? We counter them by knowing that God knows us. Dr. Riken paints a picture of, of a girl who's been abandoned in a city. Alone, taken in, in an orphanage with no connection, no hope, utter loneliness, meaninglessness and despair. And he paints this picture of this girl who's in the orphanage and and, and is then adopted by a family who comes looking for a girl like her, who comes to bring her home out of their desire to adopt her, who is loved with the strength and constancy of parents whose goal was to adopt her. Secure in their love that they initiated that they promised, that they demonstrate on a daily basis, will that girl ever run from the home and return to the orphanage? How is that even conceivable when the ground of her hope is the constancy and the sufficiency 
the grounded, demonstrated, proved love of these parents for her. It is their love for her that grounds her security, not her love for them. So it is the security and the love of God who knows us, who initiated his love toward us, who came to die for us. It's this powerful truth that grabs our affections and holds our affections on him and that assures our hearts that we need gain or earn no qualification to maintain his favor. See, brothers and sisters, in the face of temptations of pleasure and success and worldliness, or in the face of fear and insecurity that we're not good enough to be accepted or approved by God, in the face of these temptations and fears, Paul says, remember, you know God, but more, God knows you. So gaze on the glory of that thought and rest in the security of that strong truth. Your God knows you. Your God loves you. Your God has grabbed hold of you. That is the great truth that holds our hearts from forgetting, from wandering, from turning, from being drugged back into slavery. But as Paul expresses his his deep desire that the Galatian Christians would not turn back to the, the worthless principles and slavery of the world, he goes on in the rest of the passage and begins to, to reminisce, to to share again, to think back on the original reception of the gospel that these Galatians had, had expressed when he first came to them. And so in verses 11 through 20, Paul begins to think back over his ministry in Galatia, and he contrasts the initial acceptance of the gospel of, the, of these Galatian Christians with the way they're responding to the gospel now. So if you start to look through these verses, you start to see this, this contrast. And Paul, Paul's language is, is hyperbolic. It's, 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 it's dramatized. He emphasizes the depth of the joy and gratitude of the Galatians when they first heard the gospel of, of grace, saying that they received Paul as an angel of God, sick and weak as he was. He says that they would have gladly gouged their eyes out and given him their own eyeballs if they could have. This is a bit of an odd phrase. I mean, we don't normally think of people, you know, sort of, if I gouge my eyeball out and hand it to you, would that be helpful? Um, I knew a, a guy growing up who had a false eye and he would love to pop his false eye out and put his eyeball on you and said, I've got my eye on you. Um, but, you know, aside from sort of random stories like this, we don't normally see people, you know, offering to exchange eyeballs. What's Paul talking about here? And there's a couple things that could be going on here. Some commentators believe that um, you know, Paul, Paul's eyesight was poor from his blinding encounter with, with Christ on the road to Damascus. And so some people believe that Paul came to Galatia with poor eyesight and that the Galatians expressed their love for him by saying, look, we would even give you our good eyes in exchange for your bad ones if we could because we appreciate what you've done for us so much. Other commentators just think that this is a, a, an example or a heightened example of how much they, they loved Paul and appreciated him, that they would be willing to, to give him their good eyes. But, but either way, you see the point. You see the point that, that Paul is making. Look, Galatians, when I first came to you and preached the gospel of Christ, the gospel of salvation by faith alone, when, when you first heard this, you were overwhelmed with joy and gratitude such that you would have given anything for this gospel. You would have given anything out of your, your thanksgiving and your joy for who Christ is and what he had done for you. But now, Paul says, 
Have I become your enemy by preaching the same gospel that you were ready to give me your eyes for? What happened, Galatians? I'm not changing in the gospel that I'm preaching, but you've gone from being full of joy and gratitude to considering me your enemy. What happened? And so as Paul contrasts his ministry and what's happened with the Galatians and their response to it over these next verses, Paul begins to give us a window into the heart of true gospel ministry that ought to shape our hearts for the gospel and for the church of God as well. So in the time that we have together, I want to look at three aspects of true gospel ministry that come out of these these verses, particularly verses 16 through 20. Look at this with me. First, First, true gospel ministry is concerned to tell the truth, not to earn the good opinion or the approval of the people who are hearing it. Now, some of you are probably like me, and some of you probably know me well enough to know that this is a message I need to hear over and over again as well. It's so easy to be defined by or driven by the good opinions of people around you. It's so easy to begin to define success based on what people around you are saying. So if people are saying you're doing a good job, well, then you must be doing a good job. But if people are a little disgruntled, then maybe I'm not doing a good job or I need to to change. I know that this is a temptation in my heart. And I know that this is a temptation for for many of us to be driven by the, the approval of people, to gauge the success of ministry and what we do by what people say about us. But look what Paul says here. Paul says that the driving force of the ministry of the Judaizers, the driving force of the ministry of these Jewish Christians who are trying to pull the Galatians back into law-keeping, the driving force of their ministry is that you might make much of them. But while Paul certainly says back in verse 12 that he is prepared to become like the Galatians in order to preach the truth to them, Paul is not prepared to sacrifice the truth of the gospel in order to be accepted or approved by the Galatians. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. He says in verse uh, 18 that, uh, excuse me, uh, 17, they want to do this. They want to shut you out. Why? What's the goal and the driving force of their ministry? That you may make much of them. False gospel ministry is driven by gaining people. Bringing people in, bringing people who will admire and appreciate and and like what they're hearing. Paul is on the opposite side. Paul is willing, though, in verse 16, to become their enemy if it involves telling the truth. Telling the truth is part of Paul's mode of ministry. I think a good commentary on this passage is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In verse 6, he says this, he says, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. You see Paul's point. The truth of the gospel, yes, it is always delivered with love. Yes, Paul is willing to become like these Galatian Christians so that they might better hear the gospel. He's willing to adapt to certain circumstances in order that they might be more ready to to receive the gospel and might understand the gospel. But when it comes to the truth of the gospel message, Paul says... I 
long to tell you the truth of the gospel. And if that is hurtful, if that makes you grieve, I will rejoice, not because you're grieving, but because that grieving leads you to the truth, to repentance, to the salvation of the gospel. We'll, we'll all have opportunities to preach the gospel. And we certainly would love to have a situation where we walk up to someone and say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. And they say, great, thank you. And we say, here's the gospel. And they say, wonderful, I believe in Jesus. And everyone walks away and is happy. But the reality is, when it comes to discipling Christians and non-Christians towards Christ, true gospel ministry will often need to tell the truth, telling it with love, but telling it in a way that grieves into repentance as well. So true gospel ministry, as it declares the glorious, freeing grace of Christ with an attitude of humility driven by the love of Christ, tells the truth to those who need to be rescued. Over the summer, I read an excellent book by David Platt called Follow Me. Some of you may have read this book. In one chapter, I was struck by how he was describing a strategic plan his church was putting together for for growing as a healthy church. And one of the key elements to the plan was to practice more faithfully church discipline, to more actively call members who were living in sin to repentance and to discipline them if they were willing to repent. And David Platt talks in in the chapter about how a fellow pastor of his heard of this strategic plan and commented with a smirk, church discipline, some growth plan, let me know how that works out for you, and walked away. And you see what the other pastor was saying, how is confronting sin by telling the truth going to lead you to church growth? But David Platt's response, I think, was, was well said. He said, the best plan for growing as a faithful church is not to keep members, but to declare the truth of the gospel to the members that God is bringing to our church. True gospel ministry speaks the truth in love. It engages in gospel ministry to preach this freeing, saving truth of Christ with his call to die with him that we might live with him. So this is the first mark of true gospel ministry, that we speak the truth rather than earn the good opinion of those we're ministering to. Secondly, secondly from this passage, a true gospel ministry is in anguish for the hearts and the salvation of God's people. You look in verse 19, Paul says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. See, Paul, Paul is borrowing terms from, from perhaps one of the most physically excruciating events in life, childbirth, to describe the depth of his anguish, his desire, his longing for the salvation of, of these people. And I, as a, a man, perhaps can't uh, fully understand the extent of this analogy. And some of us might think, well, Paul, can you even really understand the, the, the depth of the analogy of the pain of childbirth? But you see what, you see what Paul's saying taking the greatest moment of pain I can think of and saying that moment of pain describes in some measure the anguish and the pain and the longing I feel that these people that I know and love might know their Savior, Jesus Christ, that might be saved with the hope of eternity rather than spending their eternity in death. Here's Paul's clear point. His heart is is torn. It's, It's longing. It's hurting with a physical tangible pain as he contemplates the thought that these very men and women who seem to respond so positively to the gospel 
might turn back to worthless paths of slavery. This is the man, Paul, who said in Romans 9 that he would wish himself accursed if it meant that his people of Israel could be saved by Jesus Christ. This is the man who was stoned, whipped, beaten, thrown out of cities, had to escape in baskets, spent nights in prison, all for the joy of seeing men and women come to know their Savior. This is a man who declared and who lived that his greatest desire, longing, and anguish was to see men and women know Christ. So the the question that this passage presses on us, the question that this passage asks us is, what is our attitude? What is our heart toward the people, the living people, the living eternal souls that are walking around in our lives? This is not some unique apostolic calling where only apostles are supposed to be anguished by people who don't know Christ. The attitude that Paul is describing is the attitude of all who love their Savior and who know the truth that Christ alone is the difference between life and death, eternity with God or away from God. It is the attitude of all who realize that He is the only hope for people to run from their sin and their slavery, their death. I, I'm stepping carefully here because um, perhaps some of you, like me, have, have, had, um, have experienced in the past great calls to evangelism and perhaps have had sort of a, a, a weight of guilt piled on you to evangelize, evangelize, evangelize. And, and um, I certainly have pictures of, you know, uh, maybe comic pictures of people standing on street corners with, you know, comic pictures of devils burning and, and shouting out and I'm not trying to heap a burden of guilt for evangelism on all of us. I'm not trying to whip up some some corner brigade. But you see what Paul is saying here. Paul's heart begs this question of all of us. For those of us who are content to show up in the pews of our church on Sunday or maybe Wednesday and who bemoan the state of our secular culture, where is our anguish for the individual souls of people who are walking towards an eternal destiny? Where is our longing to see Christ glorified in praise from every heart who is walking around us? Where is our anguish for the church of God to be glorified, to glorify its Savior? And how are we living that out? What are we, what are we doing to live out that anguish, that great desire that ought to fill our hearts? Where's, where's our longing to see Christ praised in our schools and in our neighborhoods and our offices from the heart of the man who sits next to us from the heart of the woman who checks us out every time in, 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 the, in the grocery store, from the heart of the person who cashes our checks at our banks, where is our anguish? Anguish at the level of childbirth for these people who don't know their Savior. The true gospel ministry feels anguish for people walking around in blindness and meaninglessness who have no hope without the gospel. So true gospel ministry seeks to proclaim the truth, not just to be liked. True gospel ministry is filled with an anguish for people to know their Savior. And finally and and briefly, true gospel ministry, the great desire of true gospel ministry, according to verse 19, is to see Christ formed in God's people. This gives a direction to Paul's anguish. This gives a purpose or a goal to the anguish Paul feels. See, Paul's not just generally filled with anguish. Paul's not just generally filled with longing. He's filled with anguish and longing for a particular purpose. And the particular purpose, the particular drive of Paul's desire is to see Christ formed in his people. 
His great desire is to see the image of God, the character of Christ, be stamped, formed, reflected in the lives of of his people so that the church becomes an assembly of, of hundreds, of thousands, of millions of reflections of the image of God, millions of pictures of walking examples of the glory of their creator and the glory of their savior for a watching world. Old preacher Henry Skugel wrote this. He said, True religion is a union of the soul with God so that the very image of God is drawn upon the soul. And this is what the apostle means when he says, it is Christ formed within us. What does it look like for you and for me to grow in the grace of Christ Jesus? It looks like seeing the image and the character and the person of Christ formed more fully and more consistency, consistently in my life and in your life. It looks like us being able to say like Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It looks like saying, Christ defines me, pictures me. Christ is seen in me and therefore, look, look at this image of Christ. Live this way. It looks like us walking worthy of the call of the gospel so that we're renewed more and more in the image of our creator because we live and walk by the Spirit of God. So what's the goal we're working for in gospel ministry? It is to see Christ. It's to see the image of our Savior formed more fully in our lives as we walk by the Spirit and the lives of those around us as we proclaim the gospel of Christ. This passage here in Galatians chapter 4, sandwiched between great statements of justification in chapter 3 and great calls to walk by the Spirit in chapter 5, is a passage that drives home the heart of the gospel and the call of Christ. The security of our sonship in Jesus holds us from wandering back to worthless principles of the world. And the glory of what Christ has done for his people drives a heart in anguish to declare the glories of our Savior. This is what we pray will be true of us as well. Let's pray. God, to think that we were slaves and you have made us sons. The greatest transfer of status that we could imagine. The greatest transfer of status in the history of the universe. Rebel, dead sinners made into sons of the living, true God. I pray that the glory of what has happened in Christ would grip our hearts I pray that the glory of what Christ has done would keep our hearts from turning back to slavery. And I pray that the glory of what Christ has done would give us a passion and a longing and an anguish to see Christ formed more and more in the people around us. We pray that these changes would happen in our hearts, not for our sake, but for the glory of our King and our Savior and for the growth of His kingdom and praise forevermore. I pray this for His name. Amen.